With the notable exception of The Lion King, this show, when it has covered Disney animated films, has focused largely on the B and C list fare. But come on, this show is hosted and guested by millennials. We all have very important opinions about Beauty and the Beast. This episode was inevitable. Sylvan is already grinning in anticipation. <laughs> My name is Ryan. This is a real deep dive. We're talking about Beauty and the Beast. Okay, so this is kind of a last-minute edition. Uh, we had to cancel our regular weekly meetup with Cheryl for COVID scares. I do feel a little bad about doing Beauty and the Beast without Cheryl because Gaston is her favorite Disney princess, but whatever. This was one that I knew we could talk about pretty easily with a minimal preparation time. Yeah, this was on the list for a while. It was going to happen at some point. So yeah, let's dig into the background of this in case you don't know. Beauty and the Beast is based on a 1740 fairy tale written by Gabrielle Suzanne Barbeau de Villeneuve. It was radically trimmed by Jean-Marie Le Prince de Beaumont in 1756. That latter version is generally accepted as the definitive literary take that all subsequent transcriptions are based on. Aside from being a whole lot shorter and cutting out a lot of superfluous characters, there was a sort of difference in aim. The very first take was more of a salon version that was intended for an adult audience, and the Beaumont version is far more child-oriented and very clearly spells out the morals. The first major English translation of Beauty and the Beast was done by Andrew Lang and included in the Blue Fairy Book. The story was a very conscious riff on the Eros and Psyche myth, which is very obvious once it's pointed out to you. Yeah, no wonder I vibed so much with that myth when I was a kid. This was my favorite Disney movie, continues to be. There's also a bit of the Pig King in there as well. There are too many retellings, both literary and in outside media adaptations, to recount in this space. I would like this episode to be under an hour. If we can get away with it, we're probably not. Just about every culture in the world has either produced a localized version of Beauty and the Beast, or at some point in their history have created a spiritual cousin with thematic parallels that are sometimes emphasized in their outside media adaptations. There are five commercially released Beauty and the Beast films that arrived before the Disney version. Disney weren't even the first studio to put out an animated take. That belongs to 1952's The Scarlet Flower, directed by Lev Atamarov and based on the Russian story of the same name by Sergei Aksakov. The first and most influential film on the Disney film is easily Jean Cocteau's La Belle and La Bette from 1946. I've seen that one, but I was in high school, so it was a very long time ago. Cocteau's film is a minor miracle of production and a classic of pre-New Wave French cinema. It features beautiful sets, evocative costumes, a gripping makeup job, and very clever special effects, especially considering the World War II just-ended micro-budget of this movie. It seems to revel in opulence, perhaps as a source of escapism for its war-ravaged audience. Even the tears turn into diamonds in La Belle and La Bette. I'm, I'm getting the feeling that you'd like to do a podcast on this one as well. It's on the list. <laughs> the Cocteau film is noted for several things in particular, although I'm not going to dwell on it heavily because, yes, it's on the list. This is the first version of Beauty and the Beast to have the household items move and have some kind of animation to them in some capacity. Usually it's just painted hands holding up candlesticks, but that's not nothing. Disney would take that a bit further in the animated version. Just a tad. Another interesting element of this is that Jean Marais plays both the Beast and Avenant, who is the Gaston figure. This is also the first version of Beauty and the Beast to have a Gaston figure, like a human competitor for Belle's affections. And that's where you sneak in the homoeroticism. Yes, Cocteau and Marais were fucking, and it is not hard to tell if you watch that film again, because he is framed very lovingly. However, if someone brings up the Cocteau film, they almost always mention that in the ending, when he is transformed into a handsome prince, you know, Marais, Belle seems a bit disappointed. <laughs> She's a bit of a furry in this version. It made me think of Neil Gaiman's writing job in 1602, where he takes all of the Marvel characters and puts them in post-Elizabethan Europe. And there's a part where the thing asks for Reed Richards to transform back into a human, and Reed says... I'll try the best that I can, but I believe that the forces that guide our fates aren't going to let me because you're just so much more interesting as an orange rock monster. Oh, that's kind of mean, though. <laughs> <laughs> and with that out of the way, let's do the plot recap for this. 
All right, the film opens with an enchantress disguised as a beggar woman offering a rose to a cruel and selfish prince in exchange for shelter from a storm. When he refuses, she reveals her identity, and for the prince's arrogance, she transforms him into a beastly monster and also his servants into household objects. She then casts a spell on the rose and warns the prince that the spell will only be broken if he learns to love another and be loved in return before the last petal falls, or he will remain a beast forever. He's locked up in the castle, and the Enchantress also provides him with a mirror to look out into the outside world. That will be important later. You were about to add something. I was about to mention the mirror as well. Okay, the mirror is important. Sometime later, this film's pretty vague, in a nearby village, Belle, the book-loving daughter of an eccentric inventor named Maurice, dreams of adventure beyond her provincial life. She sings a song about it while the villagers are singing a song about how quirky and odd she is because she thinks for herself. We'll and be getting... she also talks to animals more than people. Because the villagers don't get her. Yeah, I don't blame her. I'm kind of... I talk to the cat. She frequently has to avoid Gaston, a narcissistic hunter who wants to marry her because of her beauty. She is the only one who is as beautiful as he is. Just ask him. On his way to a fair to showcase his latest invention, an automatic woodchopper, Maurice gets lost in the forest and seeks a refuge in the beast's castle, but the beast imprisons him for trespassing. When Maurice's horse, Philippe, returns without him, Belle ventures out searching for him and finds him locked in the castle tower. The beast agrees to free Maurice if she takes his place as prisoner. Belle gradually befriends the castle's servants, Lumiere, the candle holder, Cogsworth, the clock, and Mrs. Potts, the teapot, and her son Chip, the teacup being the most prominent. They kind of break the ice by serving her a fancy dinner through song at Cogsworth Reluctance. See, the Beast wanted to eat dinner with her himself because he was under the impression that she could break the spell, because duh. But um, since he's emotionally stunted and hasn't had human contact aside from his underlings for the entirety of his adolescence, which he spent as a buffalo-looking monster, his social graces are less than exemplary. Yeah, I had uh, kind of an epiphany while we were rewatching the movie in preparation for this. This was probably the beginning of my absolute love for incompetent social outcasts who just don't know how to make the people skills go. You know, when Belle wanders into the Forbidden West Wing, whom the Beast just repeatedly told her not to go into, and the servants also were warned away from, she finds the Rose. The Beast catches her and angrily forces her to flee the castle through his just utter temper tantrum. In the woods, she is ambushed by a pack of wolves, but the Beast rescues her and is injured in the process. As Belle nurses his injuries, a rapport starts to develop between them. And she starts to notice that instead of being a crazy, aggressive monster with similarities to Gaston's toxic masculinity, that he is, in fact, just a very frightened child. Yeah, it's just specify that the film isn't forthright with this, but if you look at the timeline, the Beast was transformed into the Beast when he was, like, what, 10? So the, the movie has a wonky concept of time, right? But if the rose blooms when he turns 21, and the servants say that for 10 years they've been resting during Be Our Guest, then yeah, he was 10 years old, with no parents. <laughs> and Cogsworth is possibly a regent? Yeah, he's sort of treated as the butler, but yeah, he's essentially running the household duties and most of the affairs of state. If there was a state, the Beast's rank is weird. He lives in a castle, but he clearly doesn't have any government duties because nobody knows about him. Yeah, like, well, they do know where the castle is, though. Charles would be, again, great here because she started theorizing back when we were in, like, middle school that, like, the villagers were actually totally cool with their monarch disappearing and that they've been living in kind of like a commune situation without having, like, an authority figure. Whereas the 2017 remake just is, like, the reason they don't know about it is magic. Fuck it, it's magic. <laughs> Anyways, through, over the course of the winter, the rapport starts to blossom into love, which peaks when the Beast shows Belle the library, which is everyone's favorite scene. Oh my god, yeah, that definitely created um, shockwaves in our generation. Now it's everybody's fantasy to, like, marry the Beast to get that freaking library. 
even pops up in Bojack Horseman. Meanwhile, Maurice returns to the village and fails miserably to convince the townsfolk of Belle's predicament. Hearing Maurice's statements about the beast after singing his villain song, Gaston hatches a plan. Fucking amazing villain song. Yeah, I think if you're going to rank the best Disney Renaissance villain songs, it's a tie between pretty much all of them, but Gaston's a contender. But he hatches a plan. He bribes Monsieur Dark, the warden of the town's insane asylum, to have Maurice locked up. And with no one to support her, Bill would have no choice but to marry Gaston. Because Maurice is apparently an amazing provider. Before they can act, however, Maurice leaves for the castle to attempt a rescue alone. Gaston puts LeFou on guard duty, waiting for them to return. After sharing a lovely romantic dance with Beast, Belle starts worrying about her father, and Beast tells her about the mirror. Eh? Eh? It came back. <laughs> she uses it to check on him and sees him collapsing in the woods. Surprise, surprise. Maurice cannot take care of himself without his daughter. The Beast releases her to save Maurice, giving her the mirror as a souvenir of their time together. After Belle takes her father to the village, she is ambushed by Gaston and his goons to detain Maurice. Belle uses the mirror to show that the Beast is actually a real person, which demonstrates her father's sanity, but also terrifies the villagers. Realizing at that moment that Belle has affection for the Beast, a jealous Gaston has her and her father locked up in the basement and rallies the villagers to follow him to the castle to slay the Beast. Although at this point... Um. Kill the Beast. (laughs) Yes, they sing a song called Kill the Beast. At that point, I think Gaston starts to lose the plot a little bit. Kind of gets swept up in his hunter instincts. And he's like, yeah, after I kill this guy that she's in love with, she'll marry me after I throw her father in prison. I just need to win. I need to win so bad. With the help of Chip, who arrived at their house as a stowaway, and Maurice's wood chopping machine, that comes back too. This film is very tightly constructed, even by Disney standards. Maurice and Belle escape and rush back to the castle. During the battle, the Beast's servants fend off the villagers, but the Beast does not participate because he is too morose upon losing Belle. Emo coma. Yeah, you've uh, decided this is the moment he finally decided to become a moody teenager. Yeah, he's going through his phases of development real fast as he catches up with the rose. Gaston ambushes the beast in his tower, who is too depressed from Belle's departure to fight back, but he regains his spirit upon seeing Belle return. He defeats Gaston, but spares his life before reuniting with Belle. However, Gaston fatally stabs the beast with a knife, but loses his grip because he's clinging to, like, the side of the guardrail and falls to his death. Belle actively pulls the beast back. Very nicely animated sequence there. Yep. Well, I'll, I'll be getting back into the like the various little bits that I think they just pulled off with the chef's kiss, but that that is a nice touch that I'm going to point out during the recap. The beast dies in Belle's arms shortly before the last petal falls. Belle tearfully professes her love to him during this period, and the spell is undone, reviving the beast and restoring his human form along with all his servants and the castle. The prince and Belle host a ball for the kingdom where they dance happily, and that is where the film closes, and then we get the Celine Dion rendition of Tale as Old as Time. One thing that you pointed out during the film and that you would probably like to mention here is, you know, the bits where Belle is trying to verify that the human that was transformed is actually the beast. And first she teases his hair kind of like to see if it still has the consistency of his mane. But then... Then she looks into his eyes and that's when she's like, it is you. And yeah, I like that part a lot because it hints at like the folklore background for the transformation stories that Beauty and the Beast comes out of when like wicked enchantresses and sorcerers would like transform princes into animals so that they could take their kingdoms and this is a lot of like old werewolf stories and stuff too they'd retain their human eyes in a lot of those stories so this was a nice little nod to that let's get into the uh, wider development of this film a beauty and the beast adaptation was a disney prospect as early as the immediate wake of snow white success in 1937 various pitches were made but walt himself didn't care for any of them. They were all thrown on the shelf. The most recent one in terms of Walt Disney's actual lifetime was in the mid to late 1950s, shortly after Cinderella. Yeah, it's kind of surprising it took them until 1991 to get to this one because it's such a popular and enduring fairy tale that crops back over and over again. Like it had Disney written all over it. 
There were lots of pitches, but it never got past the conceptual art stage until The Little Mermaid became a smash in 1989. At that point, it was put on the front burner. There were lots of other pitches. For example, the directors of The Little Mermaid really, really wanted to make a version of Treasure Island that took place in space. That's what they pitched instead of Little Mermaid. And he was like, hey, if we do The Little Mermaid, will you let us do Treasure Island in space? And Jeffrey Katzenberg was like, yeah, yeah do Little Mermaid first and we'll see. <laughs> and he kept dangling that carrot in front of them for literal decades. And then they got to make that movie finally and it wasn't good. I mean, it wasn't bad. Yeah. Certainly didn't work out as well as The Little Mermaid for the company, though. Eventually, uh, Beauty and the Beast was picked to be the next one, and the first person they approached was Richard Williams, who was fresh off of Who Framed Roger Rabbit. That would have been an interesting film. I'm not sure if it would have been as good as the one that they eventually got, but Williams decided that after Who Framed Roger Rabbit vaulted him to the forefront of American popular animation, he was going to use his clout to finally finish The Thief and the Cobbler. Oh, I know. <laughs> he never got to finish it. That one's also on the list. If I do The Thief and the Cobbler, I'm going to do the uncobbled cut, not the bastardized Matthew Broderick version. Williams recommended his colleague Richard Purdom to direct the film, and Purdom pitched a non-musical concept. Oh, is this the guy I was telling you about who got fired? Yes. Okay. Jeffrey Katzenberg rejected the non-musical version. He told his staff he wanted them to make The Little Mermaid again and make a very Andrew Lloyd Webberish musical yeah and like they started making this non-musical version that was like a period drama basically i saw some of the artwork from it in the um, documentary i was telling you about because like they started animating this movie they got really far into it and he was being chewed out to like you know meet their specifications and he's like well i'm already doing it my way what are you gonna do like fire me and scrap everything we've worked on so far and that is exactly what they did yeah, Jeffrey Katzenberg fired Purdom, scrapped everything, and started again from scratch. The first movie did was to hire Howard Ashman, lyricist and Alan Menken, composer, to write songs. They had done The Little Mermaid, and uh, they were working on Aladdin, but um, they were yanked off of that project. Aladdin was, I guess, Ashman's version of Treasure Planet. That was the thing that he really wanted to do for Disney, that he'd been pitching and working on songs for. He had a ridiculous amount of songs for it. And they were like, yeah, okay, we will let you, but you have to save Beauty and the Beast first. And unfortunately, he died while they were making Beauty and the Beast. For the directorial chair, Katzenberg picked Kirk Wise and Gary Trudale, whose only major credit up to that point was directing a short film for an Epcot attraction at Disney World. They were brought on probably because they were in Katzenberg's corner and they would just do whatever he wanted. Beauty and the Beast is the first Disney animated film to have a professional screenwriter compose a proper screenplay before they started storyboarding it. Wow. <laughs> I know this sounds weird, but before this, on Disney animated films and most animated films, various animation teams would work on storyboards independently of each other, and then they would just stitch the scenes together in post after the fact. So they approached their feature-length films the same way as, like, theatrical shorts? Yes. They essentially did a Looney Tunes shorts, except it was 90 minutes long. Oh, that explains so much. Yes, it does. If you watch those old movies, again, a lot of decisions suddenly gel into place. Also, the decision to adapt old fairy tales, because all of the animation teams have a vague idea of where the story's going to go, so you can get away with stuff like that. You can't get away with stuff like that for something like, say, The Black Cauldron. I mean, I still haven't seen The Black Cauldron, but I'll take your word for it. It's okay. Linda Wolverton wrote the first draft of the script before storyboarding even began, which incensed the animators. They were not accustomed to this approach. <laughs> but they did this at Katzenberg's insistence because Katzenberg said that they should have a story before they started animating the film. No! <laughs> Ashman, who knew that he was dying of AIDS at this time, was knee-deep in composing for Aladdin, as Sylvan pointed out, and only joined Beauty and the Beast with reluctance. In order to accommodate Ashman's worsening condition, production was moved from London to the Residence Inn in Fishkill, New York, to be closer to Ashman's home. Wolverton and the directors joined Mencken and Ashman to retool the script, largely to add humor and warmth, but this is also the point where the concept of anthropomorphic household items was added to the character roster. This was Ashman's idea. For the casting, Jodie Benson was the first person considered for Belle. 
I mean, I can see why. For people who don't know, that was Ariel. And, you know, she had worked multiple times with Ashman and Mencken. Paige O'Hara, who was a Broadway lifer at this point, was cast because the filmmakers wanted a Belle who was less girlish and more womanly, partially in response to criticisms for Ariel's characterization in The Little Mermaid. Ashman That's picked... probably why they had her be a bookworm, too, I think. Ashman picked her over 500 other actresses who auditioned for the role because he said that O'Hara reminded him of Judy Garland. Oh, nice. Among the people who auditioned for Beast were Lawrence Fishburne, Val Kilmer, and Mandy Patinkin. I don't see Val Kilmer working out, but I think the other two would have crushed it. Yeah, I mean, Benson's pretty perfect, though. Yeah, Robbie Benson was picked largely because he already had a lot of experience in voice acting. So, the thing I most know him for, other than Beauty and the Beast, is the uh, PJ Sparkle failed pilot, which also featured uh, Jody Benson uh, as PJ Sparkle, and Robbie Benson was the, the talking horse Blaze. PJ Sparkles was a number of cheaply animated toy commercials from the 1980s in the same vein as, say, Care Bears of My, or My Little Pony or Transformers and Ninja Turtles. Except the cartoon didn't pick up. It was just a pilot. Yeah, they never got past the pilot stage. But the dolls were lovely. They sparkled. The um, heart jewel in the center of the chest lit up. That was a thing. So we have a weird nostalgia for this property, even though nobody cares about it. <laughs> John Cleese was offered the part of Cogsworth, but he declined in order to play the villain in Fievel Goes West instead. And I am so happy about that because, oh my god, it, it would really hurt my uh, appreciation of this movie if it had a big old nasty turf dude in it. Patrick Stewart was also offered Cogsworth, but he had to turn it down because his commitments to Star Trek The Next Generation precluded him from even doing voice work. So just an, an interesting pause for me anyway. I don't know if you remember this, but when Beauty and the Beast came out, mom and dad like offered for us to go to the movies and see it. We had the choice between Beauty and the Beast and Five Will Goes West. And we all picked Five Will Goes West for some fucking reason. And that became one of the big regrets of my life in my childhood that I didn't see Beauty and the Beast in theaters because we all picked Five instead. I mean, I like Five Goes West. <laughs> Yeah, but Beauty and the Beast in theaters, I mean, it was re-released in theaters and me and Sarah saw it as adults and that was cool and all that. But like when I was a kid, I was like, oh, we picked wrong. This would have been so good on the big screen. <laughs> uh, Julie Andrews was offered Mrs. Potts but turned it down. She would have been fine. She's good in everything. Yeah. Donnie Osmond and Patrick Swayze auditioned for Gaston. Donnie Osmond. I know. I don't see Donnie Osmond working out. Swayze would have been interesting. On purpose? I don't know. Yes, yeah, Swayze also would have been very odd. I mean, he has very good range and was very versatile, but still. He, he wouldn't have crushed the singing parts as much as the guy they went with. Oh, I think we no. could say that fairly. <laughs> All right, for the animation for this, uh, most Disney animated films of this period had a four-year period. The crew was given two years because a lot of time was eaten up by the Purdom fiasco stretching on for as long as it did. Most of the work was done at the main studio in Glendale, California, although for time reasons, the Florida division pitched in for the Be Our Guest sequence. I mean, they did an amazing job on this. The animation just holds up so much. There's so much acting done by the animators in this. Like every facial expression is just has so much emotion and does like a lot of the heavy lifting on the storytelling, like not to take away from the voice actors or anything, but the, the animators did so much work bringing these characters to life. And you should just give an Oscar to Philippe's eyes. Right. And there's so much physical humor, like just snuck into the backgrounds of all of the scenes too. Yeah, Beast petulantly pointing at the door when Belle refuses to come out. <laughs> that part. Although my favorite Beast face is when he's about to show Belle the library and he kind of bites his lip in anticipation. Yeah, he's so excited. He's <laughs> never given a present before. The aesthetic of the film was established by visiting various sites in the French countryside. The animators decided that artistically their principal inspiration was going to be French Rococo painting, which is very apparent. The film uses a lot of soft pastels. Yeah, so I always have a hard time watching DVD and Blu-rays of this now because, you know, it was restored, so they brightened up all the colors and stuff. The VHS that we grew up with that I watched obsessively was very grungy and dark, and I kind of, it suited it, you know? I, I kind of want to get a, a print of this where it's not super pastel bright in your face. 
even though that was the filmmaker's intentions. We're familiar with the shitty, staticky, color-desaturated version on our VHS copy. I'm sorry, but it does make sense as a gloomy story. The film had a crew of 347 people. The number of animators was 43. Holy shit. I know. That's almost nobody. No wonder it all works together so well. It's the same people. I mean, like, you can see kind of two very distinct styles in Belle's appearance. There's um, some scenes where she see it almost looks like she's wearing more makeup and she has smaller eyes. And then there's other scenes where she has larger eyes. So I can tell that she had different lead animators on those parts. The film has 1,295 painted backgrounds and 120,000 drawings. This is the second Disney film to use CAPS, a digital scanning, ink, paint, and compositing software developed for Disney by Pixar. This is done largely to save time. However, this device gave Beauty and the Beast a much wider range of color choices and a subtler shading approach. This is in stark contrast to any Disney film made after the studio switched to the cheaper Xerox system with 101 Dalmatians. Caps also allowed the crew to simulate multi-plane camera effects without an actual multi-plane camera. Instead of the time-consuming process of placing characters and multiple background drawings on differing planes of glass and suddenly moving them to evince depth of perspective, animators could instead just scan everything in and put the objects on different computer layers and shift things along the z-axis. So this is why there's so many crowd scenes they're showing off. Yes, it's also apparent in, say, the open bits where you see all of these trees in the foreground and then there's a second set of trees after that in the middle ground and then there's the castle and then the camera starts tracking through and everything is moving in proper perspective as if you were walking through the woods yeah that part is really nice yeah there's a lot of that in there even a high-end multiplane camera was a painstaking process in order to do stuff like that and had lots of room for human error. When you look at the history of animation, it's actually a little surprising how few innovations were pioneered directly by Walt Disney. Mostly what they did was just take stuff that smaller studios did and just throw more money at it. But the multiplane camera is actually a Disney innovation. iWorks invented it. All right. The way Disney demonstrated it uh, is that he did a scene with um, a character walking through the woods and the moon is in the background, and he demonstrated that with the multiplane camera, the moon moves with the character in a very natural way. It's a subtle effect, but it's more immersive. And yeah, that's all over Beauty and the Beast. Caps also allowed animators to blend cell animation with computer animation more seamlessly. Beforehand, animators had to use a plotter to put vectors on animation paper and then Xerox the images before painting them by hand. Filmmakers were reluctant to use the tech in the film in the way that Pixar intended, but they were convinced that it was advanced enough to use for the ballroom dancing sequence. You know, the ballroom dancing sequences does age a lot better than, say, like the computer bit that's done in Aladdin when they're getting out of the Cave of Wonders. Yeah, for Tales all this time, the camera sort of dollies around the chandelier and then Beast and Belle in ways that traditional cell animation couldn't, unless you're Richard Williams and you're fucking insane. <laughs> you would have to animate on ones for that. Uh, perhaps for our listeners, you should explain what animate on ones means, because I don't kind of remember what that means. All right. In animation parlance, animating on ones or twos or threes or fours is uh, how many drawings you're going to use for frames. For example, most of the Looney Tunes shorts are animated on twos, as in one drawing is for two frames of animation. Yellow Submarine was very cheaply done, so they animated on fours. So one drawing was four frames of animation. So that's why Yellow Submarine and cheaper stuff like, say, He-Man has this herky-jerky quality to it, because they can't have as many drawings. Who Framed Roger Rabbit is animated on ones. There was one drawing for every frame of film in that. So that's why the characters are moving so smoothly, and they're keeping pace with the human actors almost seamlessly. This is very time-consuming. It's budgets. <laughs> To do by cell animation. Most Pixar films, Wally, Ratatouille, Up, are animated on ones because you can get away with that if you're using computers for it. Okay, to give you an impression of how rare it is to animate on ones with cell animation, Fantasia is animated in threes. Yeah. <laughs> the final dance was blatantly traced from Sleeping Beauty. This was done to save time. They were going right under the wire for this, but the directors hoped that people would assume that it was an homage. Oh. <laughs> 
One thing I wanted to point out is that, like a lot of previous Disney animated films, they used live-action models, if not flat-out rotoscope, then to just give the animators an idea of, you know, natural movements. And Belle's human actor was Sherry Stoner, who is best known amongst millennials for voicing Slappy Squirrel in Animaniacs. I think that's a fun little bit. Um, that also blends into the fact that the animators did do a pretty good job of uh, capturing the um, physical likeness of the voice actors. I mean, I always noticed it with Lumiere and Jerry Orbach's eyebrows, but Brian intrigued me into Googling what Richard White looks like. And yeah, he has Gaston's teeth. Oh my God. <laughs> Put that in a Google Images search. It's creepy. All right. I, I try to make some space to talk about the music in most of the episodes I do. Oh, you wanted to add another thing? Oh, no, no, go for it. Okay. However, for this, I can't not bring up the music and devote a significant chunk to this. Oh my god, yeah, no, the, the music is most of this movie. It's such a musical. I wouldn't have been surprised if I found out that, like The Nightmare Before Christmas, they wrote the songs first and then built the script around it. But no, they wrote a script and then they wrote the song and then they rewrote the script to suit the songs. Bell, the opening number, was the first song to be composed. Ashman intended this to be a Gilbert and Sullivan-style operatic piece. That tracks. Uh, yes, it does. Uh, Be Our Guest was initially envisioned as being sung to Maurice when he first entered the castle. That puts it in a different context. Story artist Bruce Woodside suggested that it should be sung to Belle instead. Yeah, I mean, obviously it seems inevitable now that the movie is finished and we've seen it there, but yeah, focus it on the main character. Yeah, the directors agreed and then pressured everyone to just rewrite and reanimate everything to suit that. Beauty and the Beast, Tale as Old as Time, was conceived as a rock song at first, but it eventually and gradually evolved into a romantic ballad. Angela Lansbury didn't think that her voice was suited to the melody of the song, but Ashman twisted her arm and insisted that she do at least one take of it. Lansbury started to suspect that she was doing a good job when she noticed that Ashman was crying. And then when Ashman started crying, everyone else started crying because, I mean, at this point, I think everyone knew that their time with him was running low. I, I um, listened to some interviews with Little Mermaid cast talking about what it was like to record and work with him. And um, one of the, the things that I found endearing was, um, I can't remember if it was Benson or Carol who said that like, it was so much fun to be in the studio with him because he did all of the heavy lifting for you. Like he basically knew exactly how he wanted all of the characters to sound and like where you should put all of your inflections, your emphasis, and basically did all the acting for you. It was like he did his homework. So then you just like did what he wanted you to and then you did what he wanted for the performance and you got to like watch him light up and respond and stuff when you were bringing his work to life yeah they used the lansbury take they didn't ask her to do it the second take that was that was the one that showed up in the movie ashman and menken wrote a song called human again to soundtrack Beast's eventual recovery of his vulnerability and willingness to showcase that vulnerability to other people particularly bell but they dropped the song in favor of something there instead they thought that that was more suitable to bell and beast growing closer together because that gives bell some agency in the transformation as well and you know it got back in there when uh, the story was shifted to broadway and there was a little more room uh, yes, Mencken, Children's movies are short. Mencken revised Human Again and included it in the 1994 Broadway version. The villain song Gaston also was altered significantly. It had far more lyrics than the film needed and was trimmed down substantially. One way that you can always tell you're listening to a Howard Ashman song is by the ridiculous amount of lyrics and a lot of high vocabulary words that, you know, small children who uh, eat up that stuff. Uh, there was a lot to, to put into context and to figure out and to later on see in my vocabulary books. The original version of Gaston's villain song was used in the 1994 Broadway version and also in the 2017 remake. This I would is... also argue that Kill the Beast is a villain song for Gaston. Yeah, I guess. So he gets two of them. And that one is also very wordy. Beauty and the Beast marks the first Disney animated film to have a modernized pop music version of one of the main songs playing over the end credits. This one was done by Celine Dion, and it was her first major North American hit. This is a tradition that Disney would continue to the modern day. All right, let's talk about the cast. Uh, first, we have Paige O'Hara as Belle. I mean, I'm expecting you to have things to say about a performance in this. 
Um, not much beyond gushing. I mean, she does a really good job. Beautiful voice. I love particularly her interactions with Gaston because, you know, I was assigned female at birth. Everyone has had to put up with a guy like that. And she just beautifully conveys the like, I'm so done with this, but I don't want to get like sex assaulted right now. Oh, sorry. I just I don't deserve you. One little thing that I picked up was that O'Hara had a habit of getting stray bits of hair in her face while she was recording her voice and kept brushing it out of the way. And but when they used that. Yeah, the directors liked that and decided that that was going to be one of Belle's ticks in the movie. I like that. I do think that she has a lovely voice, both in speaking and singing, and you get behind the character right away, and a lot of that is just due to how expressive the animation is, but the voice is also a big part of that. Yeah, Belle was a character I latched onto as a kid. Like, when I saw The Little Mermaid, like, I fell in love with Ariel. I wanted to marry her. When I saw Beauty and the Beast, I was like, oh, fuck, I am Belle, the weird outsider that the whole town is singing songs about how fucking weird she is because she won't stop reading books, and, like, Belle's not as socially inept as the beast but she's also not a people pleaser and doesn't seem to know like what it is she's doing wrong exactly that landed with me and we have robbie benson as the beast for the longest time i thought that michael dorn voiced the beast for some reason yeah you weren't the only one if you google that like you will see other people thought that too okay I'm, i'm glad that i'm not alone in that uh, the, the beast, in terms of his appearance, was a composite of a bison, a bear, a gorilla, a lion, a bear, and a wolf. Among the various other things that showcase the, the beast's expressiveness and his transformation into reclaiming his humanity is that when you first meet him, he's scowling and scurrying about in all fours, and at some point, he learns to stand on his legs again. Yeah, you, you really get the sense from this character that, like, whether or not he was physically young when the Enchantress cast the spell on him, because... Also, the portrait that he tears up shows him as an adult. So that is another thing that makes time weird in this, and it's kind of ambiguous. But whatever, he he is an emotionally stunted, like, in a youthful frame of mind. So you can totally see this, like, kid acting out, having temper tantrums, not having authority figures. The servants do tell him to, like, watch his temper and try to get him to straighten up, but they're also afraid of him. So they're not good at it. I don't know. He just, there are some parallels here to me with Anthony Fremont and the Twilight Zone episode um, with where like, you know, the adults want to correct him and discipline him, but they are terrified of him. So what's going to happen? You're going to go with full monster mode until there's a reason for you to check yourself. Uh, Benson's voice was pitch corrected to be lower and more growly. And they also added uh, panther roars to his repertoire. Oh, you mean the roars weren't him? No, the roars (laughs) weren't him. Well, they had him do the roars, and then they added panther to it. Oh, neat. Uh, One thing uh, that I picked up is that in uh, the various foreign versions of it, uh, the Beast is voiced in the Chinese version by Jackie Chan, both in speaking voice and singing voice. Apparently Chan has a a very nice singing voice in Mandarin. I mean, and to be fair, the Beast doesn't have a lot of singing. It's just in something there. They also have Chan play a character in Mulan, where he makes a man out of you, and that is a demanding song. Yeah, that's much more singing. Uh, We have Richard White as Gaston, who just steals the movie. (laughs) He's so good. Uh, I remember once when we were watching this, after there had been like a pause between like childhood watching and maybe we're in high school or like just after high school or something, and you seem to like just notice that he had an amazing singing voice. Yeah, White is mostly an opera singer. That is very easy to tell based on this film. He has a hell of a diaphragm, voice that projects to the back row, even if you don't mic him. And just all of, I don't know, is there a male equivalent of trilling? I think of that as a soprano move, but like he he, do, he does that. It's real nice. He has so many hammy, over-the-top lines that you only really encounter in people who have a lot of stage background. I, I love the way he just says, crazy old Maurice. Right? And Cheryl's favorite is obviously in the climactic battle sequence where he's like, did you love her, beast? <laughs> You think that she would chose you when she could have someone like me? Oh, and and his little girl scream when he falls from the tower, too. 
Beauty and the Beast is one of hundreds of films to have the Wilhelm scream, and they use it during the more comedic sequences when the villagers are being chased out by the various household appliances. I understand why they didn't have Gaston die with the Wilhelm scream, although I would have found it acceptable. Should you explain what the Wilhelm scream is? I'm assuming that if you're listening to a movie door podcast, you know what it is, but it's a canned yell that was often recycled in old westerns and action movies, and it eventually became an inside joke amongst new Hollywood directors in the 70s, and they just started using it over and over again, and then eventually fans started noticing it's in every Star Wars movie, it's in every Indiana Jones, it's in a whole bunch of superhero movies, it's in numerous Disney movies. Look it up on YouTube, you've heard it, you'll recognize it right away. Uh, in addition to a Wilhelm scream, there's also a secret Mickey. If you pause just right, some raindrops form mouse ears. Also, the destroyed paintings in the West Wing, I found out, were all either lost or partially finished abandoned masterpieces. There's an unfinished Rembrandt hanging in there. There's an unfinished Goya. Apparently, one of the portraits, maybe the destroyed beast portrait, I don't know which one for sure, was a Raphael painting that was stolen by the Nazis and then subsequently lost. I think that's a really neat detail that they worked in there. Like, seriously, less animators than usual and half the time and look at all of the detail work. There were a number of scenes that were in the animatic stage, but were cut not only for time, but also for being too gruesome. One of which was a Gaston-centric scene where he tours the asylum before he decides to throw Maurice in there. Oh, they decided that wasn't good for a children's movie. Yeah, there was also a bit where, like, the beast kills a deer and drags its carcass to the castle. Why would that even be necessary? <laughs> All right, moving Good on. job bringing that in. Moving on, we have Jerry Orbach as Lumiere. Now, I know that Orbach has a long history in his career doing hammy Broadway roles that are very much in the Lumiere vein, but I mostly know him outside of this for doing grisly film noir stuff where he's doing character actor stuff as a cop or a gangster. For like, realizing that he was Lumiere in Beauty and the Beast as a kid, I, I knew him for Law and Order and Dirty Dancing. He's also in Crimes and Misdemeanors, which I liked, but it's a Woody Allen movie, so I don't know how to approach that anymore. He's a hitman in that. And in this, he's delightful. He chews through that fake Inspector Clouseau French accent with so much verve. And I bet that the animators based their eyebrows exactly on the stuff he did while he was reading his lines, because man's got some eyebrows. Yep, perfect and charming. Uh, we have David Ogden Steers as Cogsworth, who was like their eighth choice. But yet now you can't imagine anyone else doing it. And uh, apparently the directors loved him because they used him in Hunchback of Notre Dame. Oh, um, one of your favorite lines was an ad lib. Yes, when Beast asks Cogsworth what he should do in order to oppress women, because Cogsworth, he's got game. <laughs> he says, oh, the usual flowers, chocolates, promises you don't intend to keep. keep. And he's like, yeah, that was that was a Steers line that he just ad libbed. And I liked that line before. I like it better now. In the French version, he is referred to as Big Ben because he kind of looks like a clock tower and he's the British guy, yet he gets to have a Napoleon hat. And one of the reasons why I assume he's a regent instead of just a butler. Beast's parents are dead. He was probably a kid when he was transformed. It would make sense for there to be a foreign regent looking over him. Uh, we have Angela Lansbury as Mrs. Potts. Uh, originally, this character was supposed to be called Mrs. Chamomile, but eventually they decided that all the characters should have simple names that denote what they actually are. Yeah, Chamomile would have thrown me as a small child. I was six when this movie came out. And this is my anchor role for Angela Lansbury. Um, she had been a um, movie lifer for a long time at this point. She had recently transitioned from being a supervillain in every part to being the protagonist. She did this in between episodes of Murder, she wrote. It was interesting to say, revisit her earlier roles where she's the bad guy because she's very good at being the bad guy. Like, oh, Mrs. Potts, don't have sex with your own son. Um, so, I mean, this is an anchor role and also Mommy Fortuna in The Last Unicorn, so it wouldn't have thrown me to see her as a villain because, you know, I saw her as both right away. You don't anchor her role for Mommy Fortuna, too? 
I didn't realize that Mrs. Potts and Mommy Fortuna were the same person until a bit later. I was a teenager. Oh, really? Yeah. I mean, her voice is very distinctive. Oh, it's obvious now. Uh, we have Bradley Pierce as Chip. This character was only supposed to have one line, but the directors really liked Pierce's reading of that one line, so they started giving him more. When I was a kid, I usually found kids in movies really annoying. I always wanted to punch Chip. And I get it. He's just so twee. <laughs> and he's already partially broken. You just tip the cup a little more, push him off a ledge like a cat. Now, as Dan O'Brien pointed out in his Beauty and the Beast video essay, one interesting little wrinkle of Beauty and the Beast that people often overlook, even when they're overanalyzing the film. Chip makes no goddamn sense. Yes. Chip refers to Mrs. Potts as mom, even though she is clearly postmenopausal. There's a story there. There's potential, like, you can tell that expanding the role was a whim because, yeah, this character makes no sense. Was he birthed as a teacup? Also, he has, like, 80 siblings, so... So why does she only pay attention to him? Yeah, and Mrs. Potts got, like, super busy, and maybe that aged her. (laughs) Uh, How did these children happen during the curse? Uh, We have Rex Everhart as crazy old Maurice. This was another character I wanted to punch when I was a kid. Poor Philippe. You didn't deserve that. Well, you needed an absent-minded dope that Bell needed to leave the castle to take care of. I think he fits the role nicely. I think he has a pleasant enough voice. Oh, yeah, no, he does the role fine. I mean, I guess when I'm running through the cast on any of these episodes, I have to use the phrase stock character at least once. <laughs> Speaking of which, uh, Jesse Cordy as LeFou, he was also modeled after the voice actor. And this is something that you should Google. Yep, Google images search. You can see it. No, he's fun. I always liked LeFou. Uh, yeah, I suppose we could get into Josh Gad's portrayal of him in the remake, which I have not great feelings about, but we'll get there. All right, now, more minor characters. Uh, Frank Welker, who I'm going to mention every time he shows up in an episode, he is Sultan the Footstool, who was later the dog. Oh, nice! I didn't know that was another Welker role. Well, I mean, if it's between, like, 1970 and 1999, and it's an animal in a cartoon, it's a good well, chance it's Welker. He's not Philippe. Yeah, yeah, I guess he's not Philippe. All right, and then we have Tony J as Monsieur Dark. Oh, uh, man, what a voice. You might not know Tony J by name, but you know his voice if you're a millennial. He showed up in dozens of Saturday morning cartoons that you watched religiously. He has 182 IMDb acting credits. It's mostly cartoons and video games, and uh, a lot of times he is the narrator. He's the narrator in anything animated that was made in his lifetime that required a narrator. The lines that were used in the film were all from his audition for the part. The directors just decided that those takes were perfect as they were and that he couldn't improve upon them, so they were all just transferred into the film. They liked him so much that they gave him the part of Frollo in The Hunchback of Notre Dame. In terms of Disney Renaissance villain songs, I like Frollo's song, but it might be the one that's not in the running for Tied for First. No comment. I I actually have never seen Hunchback. I don't think you'll be into it. No, I don't either. <laughs> I figured that out when I was nine. They try to turn it into Les Mis, and Hunchback is not Les Mis. All right, release and reception for this film. Uh, Beauty and the Beast had a budget of $25 million. It made $145.9 million in North America, and then an additional $331.9 million worldwide. Woo! Not only was this insanely profitable, but it was the third most successful film of 1991. The two in front of it were Terminator 2, Judgment Day, and Robin Hood, Prince of Thieves. Not Five Goes West. <laughs> we picked wrong, Ryan. We picked so wrong. I, I want to mention, as a, uh, you know, family that was struggling a little bit financially with five kids, we didn't get to go to the movies very often. This was a very big choice. Ashman didn't live long enough to see the finished film, uh, although while he was hospitalized, as I read and as Sylvan pointed out while we were watching the film, a mostly animatic film was shown to test audiences in New York, and that got standing ovation. Uh, everyone adored it, so the crew just rushed to the hospital to tell Ashman about it. And he was wearing a Beauty and the Beast sweatshirt at the time. And they were like, it was a hit! Who knew? And Ashman responded with, I did. Yeah, it was a big emotional thing for everybody, too, because that was, a you know, he was in the hospital because he was dying, and they kind of realized that, you know, he wasn't going to ever see the completed film. 
the film won a number of awards. It was the very first film to win an Annie Award for Best Animated Feature. They had created the category just that year. It won the Golden Globes for Best Score, Best Song for uh, Tales All This Time, Beauty and the Beast. Be Our Guest was also nominated. And it won Best Picture for Musical or Comedy. The Golden Globes have two Best Picture categories, one for Musical or Comedy and then one for Drama. They decided to split the two because they thought lumping them all into one category was apples and oranges and dumb. And they're right. It was nominated for Best Picture for the Oscars, and after it did not win, um, suddenly a Best Animated Picture category appeared. A lot of people theorized that this category was created as a ghetto to shove animated films into so they wouldn't have to besmirch the Best Picture category by nominating cartoons, which the Academy has never acknowledged, but lots of people believe. I definitely believe that. Beauty and the Beast was the first animated film to get nominated for the Oscar for Best Picture. Only two others have been nominated since. Uh, Who were the other two? Up and Toy Story 3. So it took a while. Yeah. And also, like, those ones are also equally, like, oh my god movies. (laughs) Very emotional. In addition to the Oscar nomination for Best Picture, it got nominated for Best Sound Design, Best Original Score, and Best Original Song for Beauty and the Beast Tales All This Time. It won for both of the music categories. As with the Golden Globes, Ashman's longtime partner went on stage alongside Mencken to accept. The music in this film, too. Like, this is one of those film scores where I do just listen to the whole score, instrumentals and everything. Um, My favorite song is actually the part where the beast dies. There's just so much emotion there. Yeah, I wasn't expecting it, but when I saw the 2017 remake and you got the chimes that give you the opening motif, I got chills. I wasn't expecting that sensation, but I did. Moving on, we have sequels and remakes. Now, Disney is not averse to actually putting money and effort into creating like actual theatrical sequels to their hits, but in the 90s, their theatrical films, uh, in, in terms of animation, would get quickly slapped together direct-to-video, much cheaper releases, and Beauty and the Beast was no exception. They waited a bit, though. We did cotton on rather quickly that none of these were worth watching after Return of Jafar. Yeah, the first Beauty and the Beast sequel was The Enchanted. Christmas, which was released in 1997. Quite a gap. Yeah, I think I checked that one out at the library. Uh, Morbid curiosity, but I wasn't going to pay to see it. Yeah, we saw it once. It wasn't very good. They had Tim Curry voice an evil organ, and that sounds fun, but it was a waste. Yeah, he was bitter because he was chained to the wall and he couldn't move around the castle. Well, neither could the fucking stove. Stove did the best he could. He was passionate about his work. Then we have Bell's Magical World in 1998 and Bell's Tales of Friendship in 1999. I haven't seen either of those. I didn't know they existed until I looked them up for this podcast. Apparently, all of these take place in that little buffer in between winter sequence where they're doing there is something there that wasn't there before. I mean, that is the only place where you can really sneak in more story. I I like how the Little Mermaid uh, expanded world is just, like, vague on when the fuck that shit happens. Yeah, there were several video games, including a platformer and a side-scroller. I'm not sure what the side-scroller was like. I'm imagining it, like, being a beat-em-up in the same vein as Ninja Turtles, and if that's true, I want to play it. (laughs) (laughs) I mean, if it's just, like, the battle scene in the castle, that's really fun. It could be fun. Yeah, the only Beauty and the Beast video game appearance I have played personally is when the Beast shows up in Kingdom Hearts. He gets to be a play-along character because his universe is wiped out, but through force of will, he decided to survive because he could help Sora restore the multiverse and bring Belle back. It's, nice. It's sweet. I got a, a good anecdote to share here. It's not, like, video game related, but uh, Charles did a really fun D&D campaign that was, like, Beauty and the Beast-based without telling her uh, party that that's what she was doing. Oh, it was Disney in general. Like, there was a talking rat monster that had infinite charisma. So, for the Beauty and the Beast section, the party was hired by Gaston to go and rescue the princess from the castle, and she didn't make it apparent that it was Gaston hiring them, and when they were fighting the monster, they decided, the party, independently of Cheryl as the DM, decided to skin him and wear his pelt to see if it granted them any powers. 
because it was a magical beast. And then when they found the princess to rescue her, she broke down in hysterical sobs because they were wearing the skin of her lover. That's when they figured out that it was Beauty and the Beast and they all got mad at her. There's another anecdote you um, were wavering about telling in regards to uh, the bell song. Okay, yeah. So, like I mentioned, there's a lot of vocabulary in this movie. You know, it was marketed towards children, but clearly made for adults and adult enjoyment. And uh, when I was a kid and was listening to Bell and the reprise, like, what the hell does provincial mean? I've never heard that word before. And there was one day where I just like paused the movie and ran around the house to every adult I could find and tried to make them tell me what provincial meant because I wanted to know what the new word was. And everyone brushed me off and was like just trying to get rid of me. And it took me a while to figure out, oh, it's because they didn't know either. Reminds me of a Calvin and Hobbes strip where Calvin asks his dad how a carburetor works. <laughs> his dad is like, I can't tell you because it's an adult's only secret. <laughs> it's like, no, it's not. You just don't know. I think mom had a lot of those moments in particular with us reading books. All right, then we have the 2017 remake, which I don't want to do an episode on, but I only want to barely touch upon this because, yeah. I haven't seen it since the two times I did see it in theaters, and I remember thinking that I liked it, although I had issues with it, such as, you know, their unwillingness to cast people who can sing in musicals. Yeah, there's a lot of auto-tuned pitch correction and actors with minimal singing experience doing their best. When you can hire, just there, there are real singers in the world, and Broadway is full of people who can both sing and act. In fact, at one point, Hollywood was dominated by people who could sing, act, and dance, even. Yeah, the Beauty and the Beast live-action remake is a nakedly cynical attempt to dust off one of their brands and appeal to adult millennials and have them drag their kids there so they have to buy two tickets. That alone doesn't make the film worthless, but they do try to stretch out the running time by writing a boring song for the Beast to sing, but also trying to address long-standing fan nerd complaints about Beauty and the Beast, say the Enchantress cursing the household staff in, in addition to the Beast, the many accusations of Belle having Stockholm Syndrome, stuff like that. I, I do like that since they had more time to work with, because children's movies or especially animated films are so short, that they did try to give the story more so that you're not just watching a complete and total remake. Because otherwise, like, you are always just going to go for the animated one. It's so good. Personally, I think the touches about Belle's dead mother were a decent addition. I didn't hate those. I also thought, like, again, they did a very nice job with Gaston and making him, like, enough of a real-world villain to give you the creeps. I didn't particularly like their half-assed attempts to pat themselves on the back by making LeFou gay. Yeah. Like, it's, it's barely in there, and it's barely in there because they can easily scrub it out for releases in countries such as China or Russia where the film censors wouldn't allow characters to be gay. At the same time, they want to engage in rainbow capitalism, just have it both ways. And, like, potentially there's a good story there. Like, they were starting to get at something with, like, LeFou being stuck in a toxic queer friendship because of his crush. But, yeah, they didn't do enough with it. Anyways, that's a whole other thing. Uh, getting back to the good movie. Themes! Okay, uh, first thing I wrote down was making Belle an odd bookworm in response to complaints that Ariel was a ditz. See, that I, I always, like, I, I get very defensive of Ariel because that is, like, a first childhood crush of mine. Because I don't, I never thought of her as a ditz. I thought of her as someone who was very curious about a foreign culture that she was thrown into. Why would she be expected to be an expert on humans when all she has is, like, archaeological dig remnants on the culture? There are lots of things that remind us that our knowledge of history is very badly broken and historians are doing the best they can with very limited evidence. Like whenever we're trying to research something that happened 30 years ago and we have all these conflicting accounts and we're talking about something in living memory and no one can agree on it. Like how much shit are we wrong about when it comes to ancient Egypt? So yeah, Ariel's doing the best she can trying to reconstruct what humanity must be like, and she makes very adorable missteps with it. I don't think she's a ditz. I think she's intellectually very curious. 
And I don't think she sacrificed her mermaid hood in order to impress a boy. She was already interested in the human world and wanted to join the human world before she even knew Prince Eric was a thing. Yeah, I mean, we're going to have to do one of these on The Little Mermaid, too, because I really, like, I resent a lot of the uh, feminist takedowns of The Little Mermaid. I don't think it's necessarily an anti-feminist story so much as it is a queer coming-of-age story. At the same time, if you do look at some of those criticisms, you can interpret Bill as an attempt to course correct. Oh, yeah, no, because those criticisms were made. I just don't think they're fair. <laughs> and I understand Bell as an attempt to deflect away from them. Not only is she very constantly pointed out as being brainy and assertive and not like other girls, hashtag. They make her about as assertive as a fairy tale princess could be in a traditional story when she's attacked by the wolves. She's doing the best she can. She's swinging that stick. Yeah, she's not going to go down without a fight. She's very brave. She pushes back against the beast. She puts herself in danger. Like, she takes charge. She's the reason she winds up in the castle. You know, as much as I, I do queer readings on, like, everything and try to see queerness in characters, I do that with autism as well, and I could definitely see her as one of our people. Not to mention the Beast. Yeah, seriously, both of them. Maybe that's the first thing they have in common. They uh, don't really get everyone else around them, and that's okay. They get each other. Speaking of shitty quasi-feminist circa 2010 Disney Renaissance film takedowns that were popular on, say, BuzzFeed lists, Stockholm Syndrome. <sighs> Yes, we, we're going to talk about this for a bit. Okay. Okay, for those of you who don't know, Stockholm Syndrome is an alleged psychological condition, put a pin on that, <laughs> where hostages develop a bond with their captors. Uh, now, this has been completely debunked. Yeah, this term was coined by an infamous 1973 bank robbery in Stockholm, Sweden, where uh, the captors started identifying with the bank robbers and even started resisting help from the police. People also occasionally attached this to say victims of sexual assault, people suffering from PTSD, kidnapping victims, so on and so forth. As Sylvan already pointed out, this is widely contested by the psychiatric community. You can find examples of this arguably in maybe 5% of people who experience such things, and even then it's kind of dicey, and you can also conflate it with other coping mechanisms of people who are going through versions of trauma. And there's an open question about, is this what happens to Belle? Which, I'm generally in the camp of people who think that this is debatable at best. Lindsay Ellis, who is maybe the most prominent media critic who cites Beauty and the Beast as her favorite movie, had a very long piece where she delved into why she thinks this is horseshit. I'm going to give a couple of bullet points, but feel free to look it up if, if you want an expansion. Belle is openly resistant to the Beast at every turn. She doesn't warm to him until he starts becoming a better person. He tells her not to go in the, into the West Wing. She instantly does this. Refuses to go to dinner. Yeah, she refuses to go to dinner. Um, oh, and uh, even after he rescues her from the wolves and she decides to bring him back to the castle and tend to his wounds, they're still fighting with each other. Yeah, she promises not to leave the castle and then leaves the very first instance that he frightens her to the point where she feels that she's in danger of her life. And yeah, she eventually forms a rapport with him, but even if Stockholm Syndrome turns out to be an actual psychiatric condition, it does not meet the stated parameters of Stockholm Syndrome. Yeah, what, what they experience is character development. Granted, it is fucked up that she is being held prisoner in this castle, and she doesn't declare that she's in love with him until after he releases her. And he does have a degree of power over her. And he also is only paying attention to her because he is desperate to have the spell broken. Yes, these things are all true, and the criticisms leveled all track. It's Stockholm Syndrome. You're going to have to reach a little harder to get there. Speaking of which, the Beast is a damn child. That is what I wrote in my head for that. <laughs> I'm not saying that that makes his behavior okay, but it makes it understandable and it makes him a sympathetic character if you're looking from the outside in. And it's also why he is capable of growth, whereas like there are parallels between his behavior and Gaston's, but the Beast is, at his core, a good person and doesn't actually want to hurt Belle. He's just very self-focused and is kind of learning empathy. You know, that's the whole point of why he got cursed to begin with, because he didn't understand empathy. 
as opposed to the original fairy tale where he is transformed into a beast because he rejected the enchantress's sexual advances. That makes him a little more sympathetic from the jump. <laughs> Although he still holds Belle as a captor and um, he's more emotionally needy somehow. He's less emotionally needy in the Disney movie. <laughs> And uh, another thing that Daniel Bryan points out in his Beauty and the Beast video essay is that in every other fairy tale universe, if a crone knocks on your door and offers you some kind of flower or magical object or piece of fruit, it's poison. It's poison. Don't take it. <laughs> this is the only time where he should have taken the rose. Every other time you touch that rose, you're in a coma and someone has to kiss you awake. Yeah, not wrong. The Beast is the first person to get screwed over by this arrangement. Well, in a way in which he does the thing that everyone else should have done. And, you know, if the timeline from Be Our Guest is correct, he's 10 years old and doesn't have a mommy and daddy, and the scary old lady shows up and is like, let me in your house, here's a flower. All right, and the last point I have is the Beast's resurrection as an AIDS metaphor. Oh, yeah, yeah, I've read a few articles on that, seeing the body healed as, like, a, a wishful projection fantasy, and then also um, the pieces that I read tied in Kill the Beast as, like, a, a very of the societal response of the AIDS scare, turning on something that they don't understand. The, the lyrics are not subtle. We don't like what we don't understand. In fact, it scares us, and this monster is mysterious, at least. Yeah, we get a lot of that, and as we mentioned already, uh, Beauty and the Beast was still largely animatic stage when Ashman passed, so when they have the Beast transformation, they, they make it into a big production, because they had to, but also, in addition to making thematic sense for the film in, this, in a storytelling way, they just had a friend that they cared about very deeply, that they worked with and that they loved, and they wanted to have that fantasy live out in the film, and it, it, it adds a degree of heartbreak once you watch that scene and you know the context of what was poured into it. Oh my god, yeah. When I was working on my research paper on queer themes in the Disney Renaissance movies, like I, I watched the, the last scene of Beauty and the Beast after watching an interview with Ashman's partner, and um, that will totally... I'm like tearing up thinking about it. It's very powerful imagery. Although in terms of queer theory, it uh, uh, differs a bit from, say, uh, queer coding Gaston. Because <laughs> all Disney Renaissance villains are a little swishy, especially Gaston. Uh, I mean, very campy, yeah. I mean, it's another situation where all the bad guys are tied for first, but... <laughs> Oh, I, I, you know, and it's, it's interesting, too, because there is something very Jim Bro queer about Gaston, but he also perfectly represents the threat of, like, straight men in toxic masculinity situations. So just A-plus all around. There's so much scary badness in him. And I, I like reading analysis of Gaston, where people talk about that very real-life element of him, of being able to just control social opinion so well. That is something something that scares me as a likely autistic person who just sucks at navigating like office politics and professional situations and stuff like Gaston is that person who can effortlessly shift the opinion of everyone around him against you and you can see it happening but you don't know how to stop it like oh on a macro level, that plays out in politics over and over again, especially the very highest offices where only someone whose brain is 80% lizard would be arrogant enough to think that they can get to that level if they are charismatic enough to go through the entire grueling process of it and still be smiling on the other side of it. That's dangerous. And that opens it up to people who can sway public opinion with their words. And let's say if you get into the presidency, half the country at least is just designed to hate you for ideological reasons. But part of it is that when you get to that level of power, you don't have to convince everybody. If like a third of the country is on your side, the other third will look the other way while you do horrible things to the final third. So yeah, Gaston has a silliness about him, but he also is very terrifying, and Kill the Beast is probably my favorite Disney villain song. Okay, well, that eats up everything in my notes. Is I'm sure you have plenty of other things you want to say about this movie. Can you think of any of them right now, or is it not going to happen until we stop recording? <laughs> 
I feel like there's one thing I should mention. I was in a play version of Beauty and the Beast when I was in fifth grade. And I just remember one of the best parts of working on it was Kill the Beast was all of the boys in the class were, were singing that part. And they had so much fun with the chorus. But everyone kind of forgot that like the verses are so wordy and so fast. And like, I think the week before we performed it, none of them knew any of it except the chorus and our teacher was so mad and then me and the other narrator are just sitting there singing every single word because we were nerds <laughs> we had to help it was hilarious okay well if there's nothing else that's everything that we have for beauty and the beast and raw recording we are slightly less than the length of the actual film <laughs> I imagine it will be a bit shorter after I edit out the pauses and the ums, but we all knew this is going to happen. Yeah, I mean, I can, if I think of anything else too, I can always slip it into the inevitable Little Mermaid, uh, one of these that we're going to do. All right, thanks for listening to everybody. We will hopefully have you come back for the next one.